0: we're looking backward in time on what we've held on to too long. We're looking forward in time and assuming everything we think needs to be changed, but in fact, much of what we used to think to be true is still true. The we'll focus on underlying assumptions is as where as scholars can make their most important contribution that will stand the test of time. And I'm very proud to introduce our speaker today because his work exemplifies what the Mershon Center School our scholarly work devoted to fundamental and underlying assumptions and mechanisms to stand the test of time. We need to clear implications for that.
1: The Rushon mission
0: is to so, promote the understanding of national security, understood in a global context. We can't do that without understanding economics. It's absolutely fundamental to the source of discontent and it's essential for the construction of the capabilities that will allow us to ensure our security and peace more generally. Our speaker this afternoon received his PhD from MIT. He's taught at Princeton, Stanford, MIT, Oxford, and is now a university professor at Columbia University in New York City. He was a member of the Council on Economic Advisers from 1993 to 1997, the last two years as its chair. In 1997 to 2000, he was a chief economist and senior vice president of the World Bank. His Textbooks are translated into more than a dozen languages. He founded the Journal of Economic Perspectives. His most recent book is The Roaring 90s*. of his other recent books, Globalization and Its Discontent, is an international bestseller translated into almost a dozen languages. He's known for helping to create a branch of economics called the economics of information, exploring the consequences of information asymmetries. He pioneered such principle pivotal concepts is adverse selection and moral hazard, which are now standards and tools of both economics and policy analysis. For his contributions in, 19- in 2001, Joseph Stiglitz was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics. And this was my great honor and the pleasure to the you.
1: Thank you very much for that introduction, and a uh, pleasure to be here. There's there an old uh, Chinese curse that uh, says something to the effect that uh, you live in interesting times, uh, and the last four years uh, have, have been interesting times, uh, and particularly for economists, because in fact uh, a number of issues have been raised about how we think about economics, how the economy behaves, that raised the question that I put as the title of this talk, Has the New Millennium Repealed the Old Economic Laws? What I'm going to um, do is to, to give you a, a, a frame of where I'm going to be going, I'm going to be talking about these economic laws, the old and new. Then I'm going to talk about some of the facts about the state of the economy And then I'm going to go into what may be the more uh, controversial part of the talk, which is interpreting the facts. And finally, I'm going to talk about some of the lessons and the implications for how we will be rewriting our textbooks uh, as a result of what we've learned in the last four years. In terms of old and new economics, the old economics said things like, Deficits are needed to stimulate the economy in a downturn, but can crowd out investments in the long run. And therefore, we need to worry about deficits. Low interest rates are a good way to stimulate the economy because they stimulate investments by the basis of economic growth. But consumption, on the other hand, is relatively insensitive to interest rates. Large pre deficits mean the country is becoming more indebted to those abroad. And it's a major source of worry because they may decide that they don't want to lend you more. Oil is a scarce commodity. limited supply, using up more oil today makes us more dependent on foreign sources unless we cut back on consumption. And the health care sector is different from other sectors because of the importance of third-party payers payor, and the importance of adverse selection, the phenomenon I mean, which was alluded to earlier. I don't have time to go through all these points, but... That was what you might call the old economics. Well, the new, the new rhetoric that you hear quite a bit at least raises questions about some of these. There are some people who actually claim that deficits do not matter, that they have no effect on interest rates, and interest rates a very little effect on investment. So don't worry. Uh, don't worry about the large deficits that we face. Trade deficits do not matter, uh, the evidence is that others want to invest in the United States so it's not that we should be worrying it's we should be looking at all this money flowing into the United States as evidence of confidence in the United States uh, increasing indebtedness to the household sector again is not a source of worry High oil prices are just a working of a margin mechanism again not a worry if there is a problem it's because of government intervention the, the uh, uh, problems in, in California were caused by, uh, by, market inter- by government intervening in the market not by deregulation the government should subsidize the oil industry to encourage more production but we should rely on voluntary restraints and demand and the oil care is like any other commodity we need to unleash more market forces yeah, but well, the experiences of the last four years have have, uh, have raised, as I say, a number of questions, both about the old economics and about the new rhetoric. Uh, for instance, the deficits have not stimulated the economy much in the short run, and that really has has challenged some of conventional Keynesian uh, economics. One of the questions economists are asking, why is that? Um, we aren't yet in the long run, so we don't know fully the answer to the long run. But uh, there is a growing concern, the real potential of the adverse long-run effects. Uh, one of the things is that low, low interest rates have not led to more investment, but contrary to what I said in the, in the slide in the beginning, uh, where except consumption is not sensitive, it appears that the only thing that low interest rates have led to is more consumption and more indebtedness. And there seems to be some evidence that indebtedness is already having an effect on the economy. Uh, the high level of poor environment has not yet caused a crisis, but there is evidence that it is causing leading to some instability. There are anxieties about the oil prices, and the healthcare sector is different from other sectors. So what I'm going to say in the next uh, half hour or so is, is to argue is the law of economics have not been repealed. there are some things that look different in the last four years than others but the law of economics have not been repealed. but some of the observations are positive and force us to rethink our economics and I think there are lots of lessons in the last part of my talk I'll talk about how, go, how, how I would not rewrite my textbook
0: <laughs>
1: so let me begin with the, some of the facts um, and there are four there are three groups of facts I'm going to talk about gap between the actual potential GDP, what I call the quadruple deposits, and the sectoral problems. The, at any point in time, the economy has a certain capacity. We have a certain labor force, a certain amount of capital, and with that and certain knowledge, and with that knowledge that capital, with that labor force, we have a certain potential output that we can produce. Uh, In the 70s and in the 50s and 60s, uh, that potential was growing at a fairly rapid rate. But the potential is measured as the sum of the labor force growth and productivity. And the major source of very variation is the change in productivity. And in that period, productivity was growing at 2.5%, uh, percent And then for a reason, the economists have puzzled over and do not fully understand, I don't know, Clearly, economists don't have answers to all the questions, <laughs> uh, even when, when they've studied it for a long time. From 73 around to 93, uh, productivity slowed down remarkably to around 1.1 percent. And then in the 90s, all of a sudden, here's some hypothesis, and I'll come back to it. It started to increase again, and productivity has been growing at 2.5%, 3.5%, 4%. Next uh, I'll come back to that it's both a good thing and a problem but in terms of potential with the productivity going up at, at those rates the potential GDP growth rate is much higher than it was in the past and most people think that the potential GDP growth in case is in the range of 3-4% and what I did is that do a simple calculation that said let's take where the GDP as of the year 2000 Let's assume the mid-number, 3.5%. Look at where GDP could have grown, would have been if it normally, if we had a normal growth path at 3.5% every year, adding on to where we were in the year 2000. And then you look at what actually the economy did. Okay, so the potential is up here, the actual economy is below, and then let's add up all the lost output. <coughs> And it turns out that that number is a huge number. It's 1.0 almost $1.7 trillion. I want to make sure you understand. It's trillion dollars, I said, not billion. $1.7 trillion that the economy could have produced, could have used for health care, education, wars, whatever your favorite way of spending money. Uh, you could have used it for any of those things, and there would have been a lot of money to spare and so that's money that the economy could have had. We didn't have because it didn't live up to its potential. Even at the more conservative three percent rate, most people used to think beyond that, the loss is over one point one trillion. And as I said, underlying this is the is is the fact that productivity has grown so rapidly. Productivity is a double-edged sword it presents both opportunities and challenges. On average, over the long run, increases in incomes and living standards are commensurate with increases in productivity. So if productivity is going up higher, that incomes will rise and we're, we're going to be better off. So that's the positive side. But the other side of productivity means that you don't need as many workers for each unit of output. So if your output isn't going up enough, If your growth isn't robust enough, rather than getting higher standards of living, what you're going to get is higher unemployment. And the problem is that that you need to grow faster. You have to run harder just to stay still. And the problem is, in the last four years, we we did not live up to the challenge, and we lost the opportunity. There has not been enough growth. And you can see in this chart the gap uh, between the growth, the potential growth of the 3 to the, the three to 4%, some years it's higher, up until 2000, and then the fact that we have been much below that potential, particularly in 2001 and 2000, 2002. But normally, normally when you come out of a recession, when you come out of a down, you grow even faster, you catch up, because of the, there's that gap. There's that gap between where your potential is and where you are, and so you have very rapid growth. And so we, we got back to 3%, but not enough to to close the gap. So we've not had enough growth, and the result is that uh, uh, rather than having rapidly rising living standards, we've had rising unemployment, uh, and particularly compared to the 90s when it got down to 3.8%. But I think I want to emphasize that the unemployment rate vastly understates the nature of the problem because of three three factors the first is that the way we measure unemployment is that you're only unemployed if you're only unemployed if you're looking for a job so if you've been uh, uh, working for a job for a year year and a half and you get the discourage. Know, you know, it's not fun to knock on doors and being told, no, oh, there's no job. Uh, you'd rather you know, stay home and not look for a job. If you say you're not actively looking for a job, you're not called unemployed. Of course you're unemployed. You're not in our statistics. Okay. The second thing is that what economists say is true, people respond to incentives. And if you have a choice of not working and not working getting unemployment, and not working and getting disability, what are you going to choose? Well, if you get disability and it pays better, you'll be disabled. You don't, you won't really, you aren't going to cut off your leg or anything like that. But if you can convince somebody that I have bad migraine alley or my back is sore, and they will give you a disability payment, you're going to choose disability if it pays more than unemployment. And what has happened in the last... Uh, for years, is the disability roles have have soared by a million people, almost a million people. So, 14%. That's a lot. And in case you haven't noticed, there isn't a disease going around America that has made people more disabled. It isn't as if, uh, all of a sudden, we become weaker as a nation, uh, that we're more and more disabled. It's only that disability pays better than unemployment. And so, um, again, those are not called unemployed. And the net effect of all of this is that there is the lowest participation rate in the labor force that we've had in a, in a decade. Um, that uh, uh, in the first eight months of 2004, is has lower than 1.1% than a comparable period uh, in 2000. There are, some, uh, uh, there are some places in the United States, some, some universities, where in discussing the Great Depression period where one out of four people uh, was not working, uh, they are told, well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but only a little. They're saying they weren't really unemployed. They chose to have leisure. Um, there was just a, a rash of people deciding to enjoy leisure in the, in the early 30s. Uh, the only problem with that explanation is that normally when people are having an extended vacation, they're happier. Uh, and a lot of people were very unhappy. A lot of these people are very unhappy uh, today. But the economist is well, that's a problem for psychiatry, not for economists. Um, well, what I try to suggest is that there's not been enough growth, but it's also the case that growth is not enough. That there was a view at one time that if the economy grows, everybody benefits Sometimes with the rising tide, lifts, all boats. But that's not true. It's almost never been true, but it's certainly not true recently. Trickle-down economics, as it's sometimes called, does not work. But you can see it if you look at the incomes of a median American family. The median American family. While well, there's been growth, I gave you some statistics. It was growing at one, two, three percent. While well, there's been growth in the country as a whole, the median American family has seen their income fall by one thousand five hundred dollars in real terms. So the median American family is 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 worse off. And if you think a minute, what does that imply? You should, I'll, I'll tell you the answer to that in a few minutes. You should be thinking about what does it mean if the economy is growing and the average person, the median person is getting worse off. <coughs> but it's a particular problem where soaring health, with the soaring health, energy, and education costs, uh, which hit these families which with, with the right lower income particularly hard. And if you look at there, there's some actually. Uh, if you look at the the other details of, of what is happening to working Americans, uh, it is actually quite disturbing. Uh, you can calculate how much you need to work, what salary you need to get if you're going to be able to work in a family of poor, what salary he has to get, what hourly pay he has to get in order not to be in poverty. And he's working full-time. The answer is $8.78 an hour. Well, almost a quarter of all workers get a salary below that, get a wage below that. So that means that there are about a quarter of the labor force who are working full-time and their family is still in poverty. They're also working long hours, and more of them do not have health insurance or pensions. It's just a chart. Uh, you know, economists like to have lots of colored charts. Uh, but that just shows that compared to other countries, we Americans do work longer hours. Well, the implication of the fact is that if incomes are growing it's not as fast as we would like, so the average income, or the median income is going down, that means that there's growing inequality. And the numbers on inequality are really quite stri- striking. The sure of labor is the lowest in the record. And the level of inequality is is getting back to the level of the roaring new 20s. Here in the Great Rats if you can read uh, 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 some of those stories, you get a picture of, of America. In the 1920s, the richest 5% of Americans received uh, about 30% of, of uh, the nation's personal income. And then, through a gradual process, uh, by 1969, that number was half, down to 15.9%. And what's happened since then, in the last 35 years, is that number is back to the level of the 20s. And uh, just a few numbers, just to, to frame what what has been happening to inequality in the United States, the top 1% hold 38% of the national wealth. Bill Gates, America's richest individual, has more wealth than the bottom 40% of the American population combined, where in other words, this one person has more than 120 million Americans. Uh, Among the industrialized nations, the U.S. has the highest concentration of individual wealth, roughly three times that of Germany. So, you know, there's always been inequality, there always will be, there's always going to be people at the bottom and people at the top. But if you look across countries, we do stand out in the degree of inequality and we've been moving more in in, in that direction. And it's not only at the top, it's at the bottom, the level of poverty in the United States, the United States has the highest overall level of poverty above the, above any of all the other advanced industrial countries. Many of these trends uh, have begun in the 70s. Now they didn't start now. They were arrested in the 90s but they resumed in the last four years. And not surprisingly, given this unusual degree of inequality in the United States, it's going to show up in unusual degrees of social tension. And the statistics here are also quite striking. Um, The United States uh, has an increasing fraction of the population in prison. Some people say that you really ought to include those people as part of the unemployed. Uh, you know they're 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 involuntarily maybe unemployed, uh, but uh, uh, the numbers have increased again dramatically from 411 to 480. But what is even more striking is how we again compare to other advanced industrial countries. Important, you know, not not to say that that what is what is right or what is wrong, but there is uh, are vast differences. The the ratio of the number of people we have in prison compared to other countries per 100,000 is from 3.5 to 10 times greater than in these other countries. It is the highest among the industrialized countries. I want to move on to the quadruple deficits, job deficit, fiscal deficit, trade deficit, and the balance sheet deficit. The job deficit is really the, the point I made earlier uh, on not enough growth, not enough growth to get jobs growing. And the way to talk about the jobs deficit is to recognize that every year about one and a half million net new people add into the labor force, graduates of universities, you know, uh, into the labor force. You have their jobs for them. And over a period of four years, you should have created net around six million jobs just to make sure you're, on, you know, that, that you have new jobs for the new entrants into the labor force. But in fact, in the last four years, there's been a disruption. We'll get, oh, the numbers came out, coming out tomorrow. Uh, we don't know what the, 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 you know, obviously we don't know uh, uh, what those numbers are. But it looks like uh, uh, it will be the first time since the Great Depression that there has been net job loss over four years and uh, um, since 2001 there were more than one and a half million jobs in the private sector lost and the only sector of the labor force that's growing is the public sector and uh, uh, um, it it is as I said the worst record since the Great Depression one way of trying to get a hold of that is to look at the employment working age population that ratio was down 2.2% from its peak of course, the natural question is, well, how does it compare to other recessions? We've had other recessions in the battle, that nine other recessions since the end of World War II. And at this juncture, number months into the business cycle, the difference is the, mo- it, it, the average for this others is 0.5% rather than 2.2% that we've had. And uh, there are other ways of looking at it. Again, it's, it, is the wor- it, it is in these terms the worst of the post-war recessions. There are also serious questions about the quality of new jobs, the wages they're paying. A third of the new jobs being created are in areas like temp, janitors, and uh, fast food, not the things that you would aspire for your own children. Uh, The problems in Ohio are particularly acute. This number, I mean, this is just a way of characterizing it, and I shouldn't take it seriously. during 2004, they created an average of 1,500 jobs per month. At this rate, the first net new job would be created in the year 2017. Uh, I assume something will change between now and 2017. Uh, but it does show that it uh, a very rapid rate of uh, a job growth. And this is, is uh, the last statistic here. It gives you a little bit of a flavor of when you say lower quality jobs. Uh, the net new jobs pay almost 12000 less than the old jobs. The fiscal deficit has gotten a lot of attention uh, recently, uh, and that's because it is the fastest turnaround in the fiscal position in the U.S. Uh, in history, from 2% surplus to a 5% deficit. Um, and the puzzle, which I'll come to in a few minutes, is why did tend to provide much stimulus. Normally, standard macroeconomic models would say if you have this turnaround from 2% surplus to 5%, Deficit, that's a 7% of GDP turnaround in the fiscal position, that should have buoyed up the economy, and it did, did, uh, didn't do m- much of that. It raises the question do deficits matter? The easy, the simple answer is we are borrowing from abroad. And that means that sometime in the future we will, we will be spending money to service that debt, and in that sense, future generations are poorer than they otherwise would be the full answer depends on how the money is spent if we were borrowing for high productivity investment that would be one thing firms borrow all the time this is, this is, you borrow in order to, to 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 grow you have to you know to plant equipment and all that and the basis of that you become a, a more profitable company so borrowing by itself isn't a, a sin uh, but the problem is that investment has not increased. Investment is actually down by around 2%. What happened is the money went not for investment, but for a tax cut for upper income Americans. And evidently, the money did find its way into productive investment. And my concern is that, even worse, is that the fiscal constraints will constrain... Public sector investment on in infrastructure and R and D. If we go back to the 90s, what was the source of economic growth in the 90s? I mean, part of it was investments in internet. The internet was the one thing that sort of congealed, you know, was was the was the engine of growth in the in the 90s. Well, who did the basic research behind the internet? It was the U.S. government and some some work that was done in the European government-supported research. So that 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 research. You know, some of which went on in universities. The great thing is that we have systems by which that basic research, that basic foundation then gets translated by the business community into productive investments. But you have to be based on this basic research that is funded by the public sector. When I was in the Council of Economic Advisors, we did a study of the returns to these public sector investments in R&D, and they were very high. And inevitably, with the, with the constraints provided by the deficit, so starving the beast, those constraints will show up in not having as much money for those kinds of, of uh, investments. It will also have a high likelihood of, of, of undermining our ability to make commitments to future uh, generations, and in that sense, at risk abrogating the social compact across generations. Just to put it in perspective, The gap in Social Security, which many of you have heard about, could have been fixed with a fraction of the money that was spent on the tax cut. In other words, we would have a Social Security, if we took some of that money that went into, just a fraction of the money that went into the tax cut, and said we will use that money to fix the hole in Social Security, we would have a Social Security system that was sound for at least the next 75 years. On the trade deficit, We have another anomaly. Here we have the richest country in the world is borrowing by now over $1.5 billion a day, and by definition, from poor countries. It is, I think, a potential source of global financial instability and has contributed to volatility in exchange rates. It makes the U.S. more vulnerable to changes in international sentiment. If the United States were 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 an ordinary country, uh, if the United States were a developing country, for instance, the IMF would be all over (laughs) America. It would be saying, you know, you're a banana republic, you're irresponsible, (laughs) uh, and you can't do it for very long. We aren't. We are a strong republic. But the United States is not immune from attack. In the 70s, we were attacked we had to go off the gold standard. And that just reminds us that that in an open capital market, if people sentiment changes, as it can change very rapidly, it could have, it's not a forecast, but it could have uh, very adverse effects. And finally, there's the problem of balance sheet indebtedness, uh, growing household indebtedness, which is leading to increased bankruptcy rates, which in Ohio, for instance, are up 68%. In a way, it's a natural outcome of the low interest rates. Low interest rates uh, have led people to borrow more. But wh- while it's natural, you can understand how it came about, it raises worries because it may dampen a recovery. Higher interest rates, normally in the process of recovery, there will be higher interest rates, leave less cash available to spend on other, uh, other things. And there is a question we should we probably won't have much time to talk about it. Some people think there is a real estate bubble. Even if there's not a real estate bubble, there is certainly high real estate prices and increases in in, 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 uh, interest rates uh, likely to bring those prices down uh, or modulate the increase in growth, and that will have macroeconomic consequences. I want to spend just a minute on two of the sectoral issues I mentioned before, energy and health, and... Again, I'm just trying to describe some of the of the facts. The first is that high oil prices—they just hit again uh, new new highs, $52 a barrel—and the reason, one of the reasons these are concerned, is that there's a high risk that they will dampen, or are already dampening, the economic recovery. Just less cash, more uncertainty uh, for investment. The healthcare sector also is one where where there's a, a great deal of concern. Uh, insurance premiums are up enormously, 64% in four years. It's a phenomenal rate of increase. Not surprising, given this rate of increase, of, uh, this increase in, in, in health insurance premium, that more people are without health insurance coverage. 45 million now have no health insurance coverage. That has consequences. People without health insurance Unfortunately, we're, we're a country that, even if you don't have health insurance, we don't leave people on the street to die. You know, if you have a heart attack, uh, we do admit you into the hospital. Uh, but one of the consequences is you don't get as good care. And you postpone getting the care you need. And the result of this is that health status is adversely affected. And therefore, when you do, you know, you type like a card, you don't take it into, into repair when it needs it. When you finally do have to have repairs, the bills are larger. So, it's a system that's not efficient. That inefficiency is reflected in some of the statistics, which is while the United States spends more than any other country on a capital basis, our health status is not as good as many other countries. We're not even the top 20. In terms of life expectancy, uh, we're, depending on the source you look at, at and some people say it's 26th, but anyway, we're not at the top. Uh, And if you look at some of the statistics like infant mortality in some of the cities, American cities, they compare it to a developing country uh, finally it's um, <laughs> important to recognize the problems are all interrelated you know, that's the nature of economics, everything is interrelated I mentioned how high energy prices are part of the problem, dampening the economy it's also the high health insurance premium in the job, many jobs you have to pay those it's a cost of employment, and they are damping wages, leading to the, uh, the uh, problems on the wage side. But they're also contributing to the jobs problem. Now that comes to brings me to the to the next part of my talk, which is interpreting the facts. Have the old laws changed? And obviously, this is where economic analysis, where interpretation comes in, and, and reasonable people may differ. Uh, two general points I want to 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 make before going into this. The first is the problem of counterfactual. The way economists typically try to approach the problem is asking questions, what would have happened if we had done something different? Uh, economics, unlike many other sciences, and I'm trying to elevate our discipline our into <laughs> science here, but unlike a lot of other sciences, we can't do controlled experiments. We can't have one America and say, okay, we'll do this tax cut here, and we'll do, in this other America, a tax cut here, and four years later, we'll see which is doing better. That's what we'd like to do. We'd like to have the controlled experiments, and after we do the controlled experiments, we can talk about what inferences we make. We have some natural experiments. A lot of the research in economics has been trying to, to look at some natural experiments, that are the closest thing to the experiments we have. And some people are doing experimental work on particular aspects of behavior, but we don't have overall control experiments. But we have an enormous amount of historical experience, enormous amount of uh, uh, of data from countries around the world, uh, 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 a lot of thinking goes on, and that's what all the... People in your faculty are doing all the time, and so we actually know quite a bit. And I'm sure during the question period you'll find out that not everybody will will uh, agree on what we know. But but uh, there is, I think, a lot of, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of what we that, that that we do know. And on the basis of that, what we do is we do thought experiments. We say what would have happened, and we try to think through what we think are the likely consequences. We can't be sure because we aren't doing the controlled experiments. We're making inferences based on past uh, experience. and, and, and uh, 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 I think on the basis of that we try to make a conclusion. Now one of the things that in, in a lot of policy discourse that you try to do is you have to be always, what you have to be very careful about is framing the right counterfactual. To frame the wrong counterfactual, you get misleading answers. So for instance, I'll give you some examples later, but some of the discussion will will center around, for instance, if we had not had the tax cut, would the economy be weaker? The answer is almost surely yes. But that's not the right counterfactual. That assumes that we had a choice of this tax cut or no tax cut. That's the implicit counterfactual. We have this tax cut or no tax cut. The right counterfactual is this tax cut versus some other tax cut that economic theory or economic experience would have said would have been a better tax cut that's the experiment that we want to do in our minds and that's what I'm going to be talking about the second very important thing that 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 one has to watch out for is 2020 hindsight or what is sometimes called Monday Monday morning, morning quarterbacking at a football school right uh, you ask you know uh, after the event, if we knew now what we knew then we would have done things differently that's not a fair question either the right question is knowing what we knew then or knowing what we should have known you, you have an obligation to, to do your research, to look at get the right information, to, to try to extract the information, knowing what we knew or what we could have known did we, on that basis doing the right counterfactual did we do the right thing so, in, in looking, looking at, at assessing and judging uh, uh, uh making an assessment, uh, one has to be aware of these two problems. Well,
0: in terms of macroeconomic performance,
1: the, there are, the claim is the economy was weak in 2000, for instance, it was over the bursting of the dot-com bubble. The problems were compounded from 9-11 and then the uncertainty of the Iraq war. And Without the tax cuts, the economy would have been even weaker. And all those statements are true. Uh, the economy was weak, the problems were compounded, and then there was the uncertainty of the war. And without the tax cuts, the economy would have been weaker. But that doesn't really answer the question about macroeconomic management, and it doesn't really answer the questions that we want to know, if, for instance, in terms of the repeal of the laws of economics, why was there this, why did going from a 2% surplus to a 5% deficit not have a more stimulative effect? So, the critique of the, of, of the arguments that I just presented is that every president inherits a mixed bag. In 1993, there was a large deficit, growing inequality, a weak economy. The economy turned around, poverty was reduced, taxes were increased, expenditures cut, the economy grew and the deficit turned into a surplus. In 2001, there was a large fiscal surplus. And the critique says that that meant that we had the money that could have been spent to stimulate the economy. And had it been spent well, we could have gotten more stimulus. And now going back to the information problem, remember I say you have to look at 2020 hindsight. It was known that the economy was weak. In fact, that was one of the arguments for the tax cut. So the knowledge about the weakness of the economy means that there was an obligation to try to think about stimulating the economy. Well, the point was that the tax cut was not designed to stimulate the economy and did not provide much of a stimulus there. But that was the point I, 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 I made before. In fact, some parts of the tax cut arguably had a negative stimulus. And this is sort of a standard exercise and problem set that you'll give economic students where you explain why it is that a reduction, elimination, or prospective elimination of the inheritance tax actually uh, 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 can provide negative stimulus to the economy. The, um, uh, it's also the case that much of the stimulus was provided by the congressional amendments, which were not in the original tax proposal. But I want to illustrate what wh- what it means to have little bang for the buck. That's what we're talking about, that you, you didn't get much stimulus per dollar spent. By looking at one important part of the 2003 tax cut, the dividend tax cut, the rationale behind it uh, had three parts to it. The first was a worry about <laughs> efficiency, concern of double, de- double taxation, Of money earned in the corporate sector taxed at the corporate level and then taxed at the individual level and that introduces a distortion and economists, one of the things that they don't like are distortions, it's a bad word Um, so the notion was we needed to eliminate that distortion. The second point was that if you eliminate, if you reduced or eliminate taxes on dividends it would raise stock prices and then the Third point was that raising stock prices would lead to more investment. Well, one should be suspect of that kind of reasoning. Why do I say that? First of all, go back to what was the original source of the economic downturn. In part, it was the overinvestment in the late 90s, it was an inherited problem, and they stopped after the after the. the after the bubble broke they stopped they stopped investing they, they some statistics for instance say that, that 97% of the fiber optics have seen no light now you asked the question I mentioned before when you lower the interest rate when the Fed lowered the interest rate it didn't need to much more investment than anything except real estate and the reason was pretty obvious if you're a businessman and you're sta- sitting on 97% ex- excess capacity, if somebody tells you you can borrow some more money at a slightly lower interest rate to buy more excess capacity, are you going to run down simply because you can get the interest r- get get borrow at one, two, or three percent lower interest rates to buy more excess capacity when you think you have enough for the next 25 years? Obviously not. And they did run down to buy more investment. Well, they're not going to run down to buy more investment just because the interest rate is lower. If their stock price goes up by 2 or 3 or 4 percent, are they going to run down and say, oh, this is a good time to issue new shares and use the money to do more investment? Obviously not. And so it didn't happen. And in fact, that's why investment uh, was very weak. But there was another problem. The hypothesis that it would be to higher share prices ignore one important aspect of America's capital market or tax, tax structure. Most Americans have the vast majority of their capital, their investment, in poor tax exams and pensions and IRAs. So these individuals eliminating taxes on dividends doesn't make any difference because they're not taxed. That's why the dividend tax cut was such a skewed tax cut. It's not go; it doesn't go to most Americans, or mo, you know, they get a very small amount because most of their most of their investment, most of the capital, are in pension funds and IRAs. It only goes to the the upper, the the, the 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 tail, and so it doesn't increase the demand, their demand for, for dividend paying stocks. And therefore, doesn't lead to uh, therefore even if there was Response to higher prices, doesn't the prices. But going back to the first argument, the double taxation, what is, two things are striking about that. The first is that it's a problem that a number of European countries have faced. One can eliminate the double taxation problem without eliminating progressivity. And we do that in the next corporation. You basically attribute income from the corporation back to the individual. You attribute any tax payments back to the individual. And and then you look at and, and he pays taxes as if it were his own income. So you maintain progressivity and you eliminate the double taxation. Mm-hmm. So the agenda here was not, was not eliminating the double taxation, because there were better ways of doing it. The agenda here was reducing the degree of progressivity. In fact, there's something else that's quite striking. When they originally talked about it, a lot of people raised their hands and said, you know, one of the problems is that many corporations are not paying taxes at all. It's not double taxation, it's zero taxation. And in fact, the share of government revenue from the corporate income taxes reached the second lowest it's ever been. So they said, okay, we'll only give you that Exemption from dividend tax if the corporation pays pays tax on the income, but then at the last minute they struck out that provision, so that today we have the problem, a, a, a much more serious problem, not a double taxation, but a zero taxation. It's not taxed at the corporate level. It's not taxed at the so there were alternatives that, that would have provided more bang for the buck and were recommended in early 2001 the reason I'm emphasizing this is this is not 2020 hindsight these are things that were on the table to, uh, in, in 2001 and the first of these is something that's really quite important and that is strengthening unemployment insurance the United States is uh, probably the worst unemployment insurance system of any of the advanced industrial countries shorter period less fraction of your income that's replaced less coverage and what's important good about unemployment insurance is that it's an automatic stabilizer so if there was uncertainty about whether we were going into a recession or a prolonged recession it works automatically it puts money into the economy if it's weak and if the economy is not weak it doesn't put money in the economy so it's exactly the kind of thing that you want to use when you have a lot of uncertainty But we didn't really do that. Tax cuts for lower and middle Americans, targeting corporate tax cuts on those who will stimulate the economy, for instance, through investment, tax credit, and aid to states and localities. Let me say a little bit about the the last. A lot of, most states, almost all the states, have have what they call balanced budget frameworks. That is to say, they can only spend more, they can only spend what they receive. So, if, and, and if you go into a recession, Almost inevitably, tax revenues at the state level go down. Not through their own fault. It's not mismanagement, it's just that incomes go down and the way their sources of revenues go down and income goes down. And the balanced budget framework means that they have to either raise other taxes or cut back expenditures. And Ohio has been very badly hit by this. But the point is, from a macroeconomic point of view, it's a very big dampener on the U.S. economy because as each of the states starts raising their taxes and cutting back expenditures it really dampens the economy we saw this in 2002 particularly 2003 so this is another thing that we could have done that would have helped stimulate the economy and mitigated the magnitude of the downturn there were other implications of the badly designed tax cut it forced because it wasn't stimulating the economy the central bank or federal reserve did what it should have done which was cut interest rates but putting the burden on on, on the Fed had consequences. It didn't work through stimulating investment. It worked through households borrowing more to refinance their mortgages, stimulating consumption, but leaving them more in debt. And that is the overhang that we face right now. So the economy was not stimulated much, but the deficit soared. Let me just say a word from a political economy point of view of the soaring deficit. The weak economy played a part in that, and tax cuts played an important part, part, and military expenditures played a part. But there was a, something else that I think is perhaps even more fundamental, which is the banding the framework. That is to say that all during the 90s, there was a framework that said, if you have another idea to spend money, people have pops of ideas on how to spend money. You either have to show that you can raise, the, raise some tax to pay for it or cut back some other expenditure. So that was why it was pay as you go along. And we abandoned that. And that abandoning the discipline is what caused a lot of our problems. But it had a lot to do with the soaring deficit. And the irony was that many of the people who were involved in this breaking the budget, budget thing exercise, were the same people that that 10 years earlier had argued for the even greater need for discipline they argued for a change in the constitution one should be very careful about changing the constitution but they were arguing that we need a balanced budget amendment and the argument that those of us who opposed it barely let me say it was only by a couple votes that it stopped getting through but those of us opposed it said look at there's been fluctuations in the economy since uh, market economies have uh, existed there's going to be a downturn you know, we all would like there to be no more new economy into the end of the economic cycle but none of us really believed it and we were right there was an economic downturn and we believed in the old economic laws that when you have an economic downturn you ought to stimulate the economy that might need a deficit and so we didn't want the hands tied but the interesting thing is that many of these expenditure increases were for old-fashioned corporate welfare. Like federal by uh, like farm subsidies, which were increased enormously and are continuing to increase in just a number of Federal subsidies to private businesses cost taxpayers some 87 billion per year. So what I've tried to do is what I've tried to do in the last few minutes is to explain the problems. What I've shown is the gap between potential and actual GDP and the job deficit can be explained, at least in part, by the poorly designed stimulus. The fiscal deficit can be explained by the tax cut that does not provide much of a stimulus and elimination of the fiscal discipline. The trade deficit, let me just say a word about that. Quite often, not always, but quite often, when when the fiscal deficit soars, the trade deficit soars, and that's why it's often called the twin deficit problem. It happened in the early 80s. We have an increase in the fiscal deficit, and we had an increase in the trade deficit. And we're seeing the same thing now. So that's if you want to know what's causing the trade deficit, it's not really trade policy. It's really macro policy, and it has to do with the fiscal deficit. And then the growing household attendance is explained by the fact that the failed fiscal, fiscal policy <coughs> pushed the burden of stimulation onto monetary policy So the conclusion that I reach is that all of these put the future strength of our economy in jeopardy, at least in the sense that they make the current recovery more fragile than it otherwise would be. But compare the new reality versus the new rhetoric, what we see is that poorly designed deficits may not provide much stimulus. When the economy faces worries about the deficits, it's important to maximize the bang for the buck. And that's what we didn't think about at that time. We didn't think about maximizing the bang for the bottom. And we have as a result, we have a poorly designed deficit. So, in terms of old economics, what, what we said is deficit stimulating. Now we have to modify it and say we have to think about how we spend the money. And if we don't do it in well in a good way, it may not stimulate very much. We have to think more carefully about how we can maximize the bank for the bottom. The second one is lower interest rates you may not lead to more productivity-enhancing investments. But maybe we can more consumption. Consumption seems to be more responsive. And th- there's an economic theory behind this, I don't have time to talk about theories of credit rationing, uh, constraints on individuals, some new behavioral economics. Um, it is too soon to tell the magnitude of, of some of the long run effects uh, of the large deficits. Uh, but increased foreign borrowing inevitably lowers the future standards of living when not accompanied by investment and investment is actually falling. And the final point is that bubbles can have strong adverse effects after they break and distort resources before. And there are questions that we don't yet know the answer to, but should be a source of worry. That is, has the reliance on low interest rates led to a real estate bubble? But it may be too early to tell, but it, this is the important point in policy analysis. Policy ought to think about the risk you pose in the future. And this particular policy has resulted in a higher level of risk than we should have had. Let me talk very quickly about the two health, the two sectoral problems. Health. I mentioned before there were two problems: soaring costs and lack of coverage. There are some suggesting the current policies may have contributed both. First, forbidding bargaining over drug policies is almost a certain recipe for increased prices. They go back to you know the notion. Some people say this is just like any other market. It's not. The government is a very big buyer, and the drug companies have a monopoly on the particular drugs that they they sell. So it's a quasi bilateral monopoly problem. It's not a competitive market. What was so strange in this particular market is why, if you have this bilateral monopoly power where you're bargaining, you should tell one side you can't bargain. If you say that, it's inevitably going to be, or it's very likely going to be the case, you're going to wind up with increased costs. And when you're in a situation where everybody's focused on the soaring cost, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. The second point is to try to understand at least one part, I'm not sure how important, but it's one part of of the nature of the healthcare market has to do with this problem of asymmetric information. Um, The nature of health insurance market is it it is a peculiar market. One out of 250, a little less than one-half of 1% of all Americans have very big healthcare costs, over fifty thousand dollars, and things like heart surgery, big co- big costs. Uh, these amount to a very significant fraction of the overall cost by that are a result of this very small percentage. Now, take, put yourself in the shoes of somebody, somebody from an insurance company. Uh, put yourself in the, in the shoes of an insurance company. What is its natural natural proclivity? Because it's natural, you know, you want to reduce your cost. One way of reducing your costs is to make sure that you have as few of those people on your books as you can. And there's some efforts then, inevitably at least on part of many insurance companies, to shift those costs off. Do they disappear from our population? No. They're still going to get a heart surgery if you, you know, if they don't die first. They're going to still get that new heart or the new valve replacement. It's just going to be on somebody else's books. Maybe on the public sector books. It may be. It may be. You know, but the, the costs are going to be there. So the problem is that there is a lot of effort being uh, under. Uh, that, that one of the problems is this. 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 What is called the problem of cream skimming or cherry picking, and these problems are exacerbated by health security accounts. Why is that? Well, what are health security accounts? You're able to put money away to pay for your own healthcare costs rather than buying insurance. Or at least buying as much insurance. Who are the people who are going to buy this? Well, the people who are going to buy this are the people who feel fairly confident, not for sure, fairly confident they're not going to get sick. So it, it acts as a, a exacerbating the adverse election problem. More of the healthy people will go to these health security policies. Well, what happens if you take out of the insurance pool more people who are healthy? That means the people left in the insurance pool are the less healthy. What happens to the insurance premium? Insurance businesses are not in their uh, charity. Except, 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 it's, a, it's an economic activity. They're going to inevitably have to raise their premiums. What's going to happen when the premiums go up? The level of unco- uh, number of people not covered is going to go up. So he's going to actually exacerbate the problems. There's an alternative. The alternative is to focus on this problem. Yeah, let me make sure it's clear. It's not a full solution, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Try to get out of the, out of, out of the, out of the insurance gold these big costs. You know, these people are not, don't have weak hearts because of choice. It's, it's, it's what happens to them. So you take these people out of the insurance pool, they're out of effectively out of the private insurance pool. It will reduce the problem of asymmetric information, and it, the result of that will make the health insurance more affordable and reduce the problems of lack of coverage. Let me talk for a second about the high oil prices. Economists again begin with the natural framework of supply and demand. Prices are high because of low supply and high demand, and then you ask, well, how do we interpret why do we get why are they so high right now? Well, part of it has to do with worries about supply and supply interruptions. Obviously the the problems of instability in the Middle East, which is a major source of oil, have exacerbated the supply problem and anxiety about the supply problem. And these were the predictable and the predicted outcome of the failed Middle East strategy. There's also a problem muddled meddling in Venezuela, but there's also increasing problems in Nigeria, just talked about in the Financial Times yesterday. It's important to recognize that even if the energy bill had been passed, it would not have solved these problems. That the energy bill was focused on increasing the supply out of Alaska. Well, that would take years before that was online. So it might help the problem in the future, but doesn't help the problem today. And so we would have the same problem today. There is an analytic issue, though, that I think two analytic issues that are very important to keep in mind. The first is, why is it that the market isn't working? Why do we have to subsidize the oil companies? If you believe in markets, why aren't they providing the supply reflecting the market? The problem in market failure, as we call it, the problem in the markets, It's not on the supply side, if markets are working the way they should. The problem is on the demand side. What do I mean by the problem on the demand side? The problem is that when you consume energy on the demand side, you don't take into account the full cost. There are costs of consuming energy that you don't think about. What are those costs? The pollution, the greenhouse gases, the atmospheric concentration, that is, there's a vast... Consensus among the scientific community that this is a serious problem, a serious cost, and those are not reflected in American oil prices. So there is a demand side problem that requires an intervention, but not a supply side problem. And that's where the focus should have been. That demand side also meant that there should have been more focus on alternative energy sources. And in fact, unfortunately, while there's a little bit of talk about that, funding for that, research in that area, has actually gone down. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, we need to go back to a thing I put on one of the first slides the basic economics of oil. The United States has a very small fraction of the world's oil reserves we can only get a small fraction of the amount of oil that we are going to need over the next 30 years out of our own oil what does that mean if we take a policy of Drain America first take the oil let's let's use up all of our oil today which is what was implicit in the energy bill if we use up all the oil that we have today we will have less oil in the future it's not like we can manufacture that oil We'll have less oil in the future, and that means that we will be more dependent on others in the future, unless some miracle happens and we all of a sudden are able to get alternative energy supplies. But that will require more research. So there is a real risk that the drain American policy makes the U.S. more vulnerable to an interruption of supply sometime in the future. Let me conclude very quickly with some lessons from future textbooks. The first is that deficits can grow very quickly when fiscal discipline like PAYGO, approach is dropped. The balanced budget amendment would have been a mistake, but so too is no budget discipline. The second is that one always has to look at the future risk posed by present policies. Brings instance, the example I just gave of Green America. There's, to use a technical term, there's an intertemporal trade-off in risk. We might reduce our risk now, but we have more risk in the future. And you have to think about, is that worth it? And how does that trade-off look like? We have a recovery. We, we have the economy has been slightly stronger because of the low interest rates, because of stimulated consumption for household financing, house, as households refinance their mortgages. But it puts our economy in a more fragile position going forward because of the higher debt. A third. Lesson is that markets may not by themselves solve all problems. And poorly designed deregulation may in fact exacerbate the problems. The strength of the American economy is based on achieving the balanced role between markets and government. Uh, I think that that really is the, the the heart of the strength of the American economy. And getting that right balance is very is very difficult. Not easy don't want to have too much regulation, but if you don't have any regulation, you have accounting problems, the Arthur Anderson problems, the Enron problems. And we responded to that. Some debate about did we over respond? I don't think so, but the, the fact is that was an example where we had insufficient regulation. And the point I wanted the lesson I want to say is is that losing that balance to extremism will weaken the economy one thing I think that there is a need for is there is a role for industrial policy for promoting, and this is I think particularly important in, in, in a place like Ohio it's not a matter of picking winners at one time uh, first president Bush's economic advisor is elected to have said uh, Mike Boskin uh, was elected to have said he didn't care whether whether American economy produced potato chips or computer chips uh, the government shouldn't be involved in that decision But the point is that there are externalities associated with production of technology. It's not like an ordinary good and that there is, as a result, an important role for industrial policies. And the countries that have been successful in East Asia have have recognized that and have framed that industrial policy successfully. It can be done badly, but it can also be done well. The next point I want to make is that the forces that give rise to growing inequality may be outside the control of government. I I talked about the growing inequality. Uh, I did explain it. I don't think we really know, we, we, you know, I think we could have long seminars about what are the forces, but they're largely outside, at least in the short run, I want to emphasize in the short run, the control of government. But government needs to deal with the consequences, such as do no harm. And the important point is that a period of increasing inequality and poverty, such as we have in the last four years and actually over the last 35 years, is not the ideal time for tax cuts centered at the very top. Finally, let me say, the tax cuts for the rich are not the solution to every economic problem, nor are subsidies for corporations the best solution to every ailment. When a policy fails, one should rethink why it might be failing, rather than trying to get trying more of the same. The conclusion is, have the old economic laws been repealed? The answer is no. But we have learned that we need to think through some of our answers more carefully. It's not just the size of the debt, of the for stimulation, for in- st- the stimulus for the economy, but how the money is spent. And the adverse election problems can be important. Thank you. Uh,
0: it's one thirty. Uh, we promised you that we would leave at that time if you Professor Stiglitz has agreed to take questions, and those of you who would like to can exit, but those of you who would like to stay, I invite you to ask questions. I think I'll stay up here tomorrow for a few minutes. We'll do this for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll call it close. Are there any questions? John? Well, yes. Uh, has anybody uh, done studies on the economic cost of the reaction you know, in uh, uh, the 11 their, uh, flights are still the fact that they were before when, when it comes to
1: it, the increase of weight of 30 minutes in the airport cost the economy $15 million a year and so forth
0: yeah, uh, I haven't
1: seen that uh, uh, the studies that I looked at it very carefully um, by the way that waiting time doesn't show in GDP uh, so uh, uh, when we're trying to interpret why is GDP performing so badly it's probably not due to that. Uh, there is one cost that, that uh, we, what, we, two points I want to make. One is that if you ask, uh, did 9-11 cause the recession or the poor performance of the economy? The answer in that month is very clearly not. That was not. You know, the mistakes were already evident before that. The, 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 that, that that was not the critical factor in, in the slow recovery of the economy. The second point, the university there's been one cost that I think of is uh, been quite large and uh, not gotten as much attention as it should have America has depended on foreign students uh, for uh, a lot of our research for a lot of our training that is to say uh, uh, our elementary and secondary schools are not as oriented to science as they should be And our values often don't encourage people to go into science as much as a lot of people abroad have gone into science. And the result of that is that that if you go to Silicon Valley, the innovations going on in Silicon Valley, for instance, a lot of that are uh, people from China, from India, from other countries. Since 9-11, we've raised enormously, and I would argue unnecessarily, barriers to foreign students. Uh, We made it much less attractive for them to come here. You know the way we humiliate them in in the process of interrogating them over uh, visas, making it uncertain whether they can get a visa. They don't know until uh, two months after the start of the school year. And the result of that is enrollments all over the country. uh, Applications and enrollments are down significantly. Um, And it was interesting uh, um, a couple weeks ago. uh, uh, you know, I had a chance to you know raise this question with, with the Under undersecretary of the, the State Department. They said, Yeah, we know about it. But even even there, they seem to be feel like they have no control over what's going on. Uh, and I think that, in the long run, represents a real potential threat to the American economy. These students are going elsewhere. Uh, yes, my questions based
0: on three assumptions. uh three, first assumption is that the current president and Congress returns. The second one is they keep the same policies. And the third is, because God loves you or hates you, Joseph Stiglitz becomes chairman of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so what are you going to have to
1: do? Um... <laughs> no. uh. No, oh, they said it's not a very likely scenario. <laughs> They're sitting awake, way worried about. Uh, uh, but uh, if the president calls upon me to serve, I would serve. Uh, uh, the, the answer is uh, you. I would be very aware of the fragility of the economy, that the recovery is not robust. In fact, most people think 19, the year, uh, next year, 2005, will be weaker than 2004. And uh, as I see the picture of, of the overhang of debt, uh, I would be much lower to rate, and I don't see strong inflationary momentum. There will be numbers, inflation numbers come up because the high oil prices and some of the other commodity prices but I think, you know, that's not inflation momentum. It will will have something. So I would, in my own, I focus more on employment and growth than I do at the current time on inflation. So I would, I would keep interest rates relatively low, and I would be very reluctant to raise them uh, at the current time. Question over there. You, uh, you mentioned that uh, many of those who are employed have very low wage rates. Uh, one of the presidential candidates has proposed doing something about it by raising the minimum wage to $7 an hour. Uh, would you agree that's a good idea? And
0: if so, why stop at $7, why not $10 or $17 an hour? Would those be even better? Uh,
1: yeah, that's a good question. Let me, let me try, to try to to uh, answer uh, uh, the This is a subject of enormous controversy within the economics profession, where it, the, the standard demand supply curve says if you raise the wage, you cause unemployment. And therefore, raising the wage uh, is is uh, going to make those who get those jobs better off. But more people won't be getting jobs. Carter Kruger at Princeton had done a, 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 a number of studies and uh, looked at this fairly carefully, and they've come up to the conclusion that that's not true. I believe, it, I believe there have been some rebuttals in those. Yeah, but I've I looked at those, and I, my own view is that Carter Kruger are right. And most labor economists do agree with Carter Kruger. I, I don't want to say this without controversy, but most labor economists agree with Carter Kruger. probably have some. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it, it depends on where you went to graduate school. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, <laughs> defining point on that, that perspective. Um, the, what is, um, the, the argument is that if you raise a moderate amount, it does not seem to have a significant effect. And one of the things, after the minimum wage, wage was raised, I think it was 1996, you looked at employment in low wage industries, it kept going. It did not have, you know, the, it, you, you would have thought, where where are you going to see a real problem? It's going to be at that part of the labor force where you, the minimum wage is binding. It's not the high wages, it's the low wage that should be affected. No evidence of that. Now, I think the overwhelming... let me—what What is so remarkable about... And this is an example of so remarkable of the standard story, which is demand and supply, that you raise the wage, you should have gotten an uh, uh, impact on unemployment, is that no one has shown a strong effect. So that... Even small changes. No, that was, a, that was about a 20... Uh, that was about a 20-25% change in the minimum wage. You should have seen big effects at that part of the labor market, and you didn't. So the point I'm making is that, that, that while there's controversy about uh, controversy, my interpretation of controversy, the very fact is the controversy is confirmation that the view that there are strong negative effects just isn't true. That doesn't have
0: positive effects, pretend No, no, but that's, the argument is that if you raise it high enough, it will have a problem. Isn't that also conditioned by the level of adversity so, for example, there's enormous demand already. Excess demand for low-wage jobs. So you're already paying over the minimum wage for most of those jobs. Raising the minimum wage a little bit not going to have any impact. No, but that, like they think, we're able to show that it did have
1: an impact. That if you look at the probability distribution of wages, it did have an impact. From mm-hmm. what it would have been. This goes back to the counterfactual. Well, but
0: there would be some minor. No, issues. no, but they have
1: there there significant effects. Be. No, there, there, be. Be. There, there are significant effects. And let, one of the other interesting things about raising the minimum wage is that the standard theory has it to a very large extent that it affects only the people for whom the minimum wage is binding. In fact, if you show, what happens is you raise the minimum wage, it has a ripple effect. Of considerably up the wage distribution and that shows that there are other considerations at play morale effects efficiency wage effects that at least lead me to the view that a moderate increase in the minimum wage will not have a significant adverse uh, effect uh, it would be you know one obviously would be better to time a increase at a point when the economy has strong growth so not now. Well, that's—I'm
0: not Sorry, sure. I just, I, I um, uh, you seem to be arguing you, you didn't think that uh, uh, stimulus that you wanted a stimulus that affected and increased investment and
1: that increased consumption, right? Well, I wanted a stimulus that worked. That was the main <laughs> thing, okay. and and uh, that 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 had a high bang for the buck. Okay. And in the current circumstance, if I were going to give money to corporations, I want a target to investment. I wouldn't have that as my only part of my stimulus package because of some of the things I said before, that this current economic downturn was very much centered around overinvestment in the 90s, And that meant that I would not have been very confident that I would be able to (coughs) stimulate investment very much. Okay, here's my question. Um, The monetary policy policy stimulus,
0: you said, increased mainly consumption and not investment. And you said that the uh, tax cut, the way the tax cut was structured, uh, didn't didn't increase investment either. So uh, (coughs) it seems like a middle class tax cut. I guess you argue that's going to increase consumption more, and how's that different than otherwise?
1: Or is that preferable for monetary policy? Yeah, and the answer is uh, goes back to this point of uh, the financial structure of households. A tax cut for lower and middle income Americans, the, 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 the particularly lower income Americans, the marginal expense to consume is high. They will spend more of that money. That will give more stimulus. But as it stimulates the economy, they are not left in as much in in debt. The problem is now we got some stimulus. That's good news. But the cost is that we have put our economy's recovery more in jeopardy because there's this overhang of debt. And so it's the forward-looking aspect that we ignored. It's the same thing on on the government's budgetary positions. Because we didn't think about what it was doing to the public deficit, We didn't think about the future again. If we maximized the bang for the buck, we could have gotten more stimulus with less deficit, and that would have put our public posture in a better position. So both on the household side and and on the public side, balance sheets are worse than they would have been. And a lot of of the work in in, in economic theory in in the last uh, 10 years has focused increasingly on, on balance sheet effects and balance sheet variables, as as being important determinants of, macro, of future macroeconomic behavior, uh, and I think there was insufficient attention paid to those balance sheet effects.
0: Well, we can go on and hold him up all afternoon. I know he has other appointments downtown, but I'd like all of us to thank Professor Stiglitz. Yeah, uh, we need to talk. We're going to off uh, uh, we need to uh, decide whether we're sending one uh, yeah. Uh, right. Well, you know, there's always there a there 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 merger. There place like that, I And Sorry. you have financially so I'm <laughs> The production of why There is. I don't know. I do I you don't know. do I don't know. Looking at the mind. Oh, you. to the Users, and, somebody, you know, and, the honor, and so what was happening was that when gifts on the they would just hide into the structure. And they would just end up in the right side the circle. one way from the other. Oh, I'm just going to have the circle you. Uh, definitely somebody <inaudible> I think more the Uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 I do I have uh, my job that's going I don't I I, I, I I don't know, know. I I don't I I don't I va uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you need time, don't worry about uh, it. Uh, I'll stop by. to the the Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, then, yeah, thank the you're okay. are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I know that you're going to it I can't understand I can't understand I think he got. He went back. <laughs> 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 Um, um, for some reason, I well, think we need to uh, in. We yeah, about yeah, uh, We yeah, needed, like, yeah, three. Um, I can put but some in here because it's <laughs> <But>, like a <laughs> fitting, it's really <laughs> yeah. Well, this will be your uh You better have <laughs> that. No, I noticed after people were I, don't think I that, know, that, that we know, to There was a film Did you get that? Do you want No, it's too late. I'm You're Karen